Good morning, my friends. I am very hot this morning. It is, it's nice. I promise I won't scream at you guys. It's all good. Don't worry. Our passage today is from uh, Luke chapter 5, if you guys want to find that. It's actually very short, uh, one, of, one of the shortest. Um, it's only a verse, chapter 5, and we're, we're focusing on verse 16. It's not customary for me to do just one verse, uh, and it may be really helpful actually just to have your Bibles open. Uh, I know it is just one verse, but like in terms of context and understanding what Luke is doing, kind of leading up to all of this may be really helpful for you. Chapter 5, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed. The word of the Lord. Told you it was short, yeah. I I couldn't help but think this week. At some point last week, somebody had to have been thinking. When we said said that the focus in our 21 days of, of prayer was going to be silence and solitude. There had to have been someone who thought to themselves, okay, so the two people in the church who talk the most are now going to teach us about silence. Maybe two of the most talkative people we know in the church are now going to teach us about being quiet, right? It's just like, we'll see how this goes, right, is what you're thinking. I think some of you were probably thinking as well, maybe you're a little caught off guard by the whole thing. It's like, okay, so not only are you asking me to pray, which is hard enough to do consistently for many people, people thinking, you know, I'm I'm very busy, I'm very distracted, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard enough to to create that discipline. That's the thing I want to work on. But now you want me to still myself, to quiet myself in such a way that all the distractions I'm trying my best to get away from just get louder, right? It just just feels like like maybe this is going to be futile, you know? This is an exercise in futility. It's it's definitely not our strength. Silence, solitude, these are things that that we don't think about very often or value, whether that's as as postmoderns. These are things like we're we're just moving way too much, right? Whether it's as as Protestants, the Protestant tradition has not talked much about this. In the Catholic tradition, you have a lot of contemplative people, but not as much in the Protestant tradition, maybe sometimes as as just technophiles. We are people who love our technology and are so connected to it, it's hard for us to disconnect from it for for even just a a little bit. Silence and stillness are, are, are not where we shine. We like activity, we like movement, we like busyness, we need distractions sometimes, we need commercials, we need entertainment. These are the things that that we kind of lean on so much. And we honestly kind of evaluate ourselves, our success, our growth, a lot of times by how busy we are. That's just the reality of the thing. We feel better about those weeks where we've been busy, where we can show somebody what we've done, right? Like, Like we value that. And so it's easy, I think, to dismiss this kind of discipline. To see that, that maybe it just feels like futility, it, it's not really going to be all that helpful. To feel like, like it feels just a little too ascetic, a little too monastic, right? I'm not a monk. I don't want to sit in silence. I don't, I don't want to still myself in this kind of way. I, I, don't, I don't want this practice. It feels just a little bit too much of a discipline for us. And then all I could think this week was how rigorously disciplined we are in other ways. I, I, I laugh every week because it's Sunday morning when my phone tells me how much I've 
in with my stream. It always pops up on Sundays. Maybe that's you guys too. It's the beginning of the week, I guess. I don't know. I'm not adept enough with these things to know why it does that. It does, okay? I just know every Sunday morning it pops up during church at some point. And I realize in that moment how rigorously disciplined we are with our streams. We are so consistent and we never miss it, right? Like we are rigorously disciplined about whatever show we are binge watching at the moment. It has to be finished and it has to be finished this weekend, right? It's a thing. It's a rhythm in our lives. And when we're exhausted, we go to those things. When we want to rest, we go to those things. And we are disciplined about it. We stick to it. We're rigorous. And Luke kind of confronts us with this compelling pattern in the life of Jesus. Even Jesus seeks solitude. Even Jesus wants to still himself in the presence of his Father. Even Jesus prays. Like, this is important. Even Jesus is doing this. There's a book uh, that Thomas Akempis wrote, and it's, it's called The Imitation of Christ. It's a really important work in terms of spiritual formation and monastic tradition. And this is what it says. It'll be on the screen. You guys can follow along with me. He says, meditate often on the favors of God. Leave curiosities alone. And read such matters as bring sorrow to the heart rather than occupation to the mind. Right? Meditate on the favors of God, God's kindnesses toward us, his continual goodness to us. Leave curiosities alone and read such matters. Give yourself to such things as bring sorrow to the heart rather than occupation to the mind. He doesn't mean like we should keep up with the news, right? You need to read the bad news, right? You need to read more tragedies, right? That's important for us, for how we're formed. You need more negativity in your life. That's not what he's saying. He means we ought not to spend our lives trying to distract ourselves with positive thoughts rather than confronting our issues and the issues of the world around us. We ought to be a people who are learning to sorrow our hearts rather than all the time needing to occupy our minds with something else so we don't have to think about it. He says, leave curiosities alone. Come on. Like, there is no curiosity we leave unturned at this point, right? There's no curiosity that Google can't cure. Every question, whatever you want to know, who sings that song, who acted in that movie, you can always know who won the World Series that year. When was the last time Georgia won a national championship? You can always figure it out. It's always there for you. It was a long time ago, right? Come on. You can always answer that curiosity. And that means there's, there's no insatiable curiosity that can't be fixed. And that means, inevitably, down the line from that, that we eventually lose the ability to wonder at all. We don't know how to wonder anymore. We don't know how to be stumped by anything. We can always know everything. And we fill our minds. We busy our minds with information and, and with entertainment. We distract ourselves from what we actually need over and over again. It's a learned practice, a rigorous discipline in our lives, right? Rather than dealing with our sorrow, rather than dealing with our sin, rather than dealing with the injustice around us, whatever it might be. Instead, just good vibes, man. 
I'm just going to distract myself with things I like, things that entertain me, things that keep me from having to confront this stuff. And the technology that we crave and we value so much that we never fail to buy, all it is, year after year, is a newer and more creative way to distract ourselves. It's just the reality of the thing. And we like it. The more distracting, the better. The more I can escape, the better. And then there's Jesus is showing us. Jesus is in the middle of the start of his ministry. He's getting it off the ground. Like, it's, it's a hectic time for him. This is the busiest season of his life at this point, right? Things are crazy. People are being healed. Crowds are, are, are coming and forming. Disciples are developing, right? He hasn't chosen his disciples yet, but he's about to, right? All those people have been gathering around him. And Jesus, in the middle of all of that movement, stops himself, and he stills himself in prayer before the Father. That is compelling because we have to ask ourselves, what is Jesus' motivation for doing such a thing as compared to our motivation for doing such a thing? Like we all know like that's, that's important. You're supposed to pray, right? But, but why? Because Jesus is not praying for most of the motivations or reasons we are, right? Jesus is not stopping to pray here. He's not getting away from everybody because he wants to be more holy, more pious. He doesn't need to feel better about himself in terms of his faith. He's not trying to to assuage some sort of guilt he feels about not spending enough time with his father. He's not about appearing righteous to everybody around him. Jesus doesn't have an ounce of self-righteousness in him. He doesn't need to be any more holy, right? Now that, for us, very often is a motivation. It's not because somebody told us that necessarily, but we feel it quietly. Like, if I did this more often, then that would mean I was more holy. That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is, is not stopping to pray in this moment either, because somehow he wants to make himself more healthy. That's a, an emphasis in our day. Like there's a, a huge emphasis on mental health, on, on the, the sort of therapeutic reality of faith, right? It's good for me to be in the presence of my Father. I will be a more healthy person, right? Jesus is not trying to, to be a more healthy person. All of those things matter. They're good. If you pray more, I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit will inevitably bear fruit in you. You will become more holy. And personal holiness matters. You can't just do away with that. We need to be becoming more holy. But that's just a side effect of what's happening here for Jesus. You will be a more healthy person inevitably. But that therapeutic reality, that's just a side effect. Jesus is, is getting away from all of this. Simply... Because the presence of the Father, more than anything else, is what defines him. This relationship he has with his Father, this is what defines him more than anything else. That's why he's seeking out this place, this time in the presence of the Father. He's not defined by any of these other things. He's not defined by the success he's experiencing. And that's a hard thing. When you become really successful, when you're good at what you do, it is hard not to be defined by it and not to allow other people to define you by it. He's not defined, though, by those things. He's not defined by the expectations of the crowd. He's not defined by their approval. He's not defined by the rejection of the Pharisees and their evaluation of him and the leadership and how they, they disagree with him. He's not defined by any of those things. He's defined by his relationship to the Father. That is what's so central to him. That is the centering thing in his life. None of this other stuff, which for us so easily becomes the center. We gravitate toward it. 
all the miracles, all the power of his healings, all the clarity of his words about the kingdom, all of that seemingly flows from this. This place he goes to in the presence of the Father, this time he spends. And Luke is inviting us. He keeps reminding us of it. If you read the beginning of the book of Luke, he will show us over and over again this pattern in Jesus' life. And it's like he's inviting us into it. He's calling us to it in this subtle sort of way. He keeps holding before you the example of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus. It's like he's saying, learn to be silent and still in the presence of your Father. Learn to make that central. Not whatever else you might value. Learn to make this the center of it all. So Thomas Akempis, right? We read Thomas Akempis, and, and he says that we ought to value silence and solitude, right? Those things that sorrow our hearts rather than occupy our minds. But we all know as we read that, that's, that's not really our MO. That's, that's not how we work. We tend to structure our lives in the opposite manner, right? We avoid sorrow especially in a season like this, right? There's this sense within so many of us. It's like there, there, there's sorrow kind of everywhere. And if I'm going to pray, if I'm going to worship, I want to distract myself from all the sorrow and, and do something else, right? That's what worship becomes, an avoiding sometimes of sorrow. We avoid our own brokenness. We avoid conflict in relationships. We avoid all of these things over and over again. We'd rather distract ourselves with something more pleasant. That's just the reality of it. That's how we feel. It's almost like a survival instinct, right? We don't want the wilderness. None of us wants to enter into the wilderness, right? But what I love about Luke, Luke more than any of the other gospel authors will emphasize wilderness. He brings up wilderness over and over again. It's like he's calling us to the wilderness, to the conflict, to the brokenness, to our issues, He's calling us to wrestle with these things, to sorrow our hearts in these moments. That doesn't mean being sadder. It means confronting these things, wrestling with these things. Like from the earliest moments of the Gospel of Luke, you see it. He emphasizes it. Remember, he, he tells us about the birth of John the Baptist. Elizabeth and Zechariah have this miraculous sort of moment. As old people, they're going to have a son, finally. They, she has been barren her whole life, right? She's going to have a child. It's this beautiful thing. It's unbelievable. But what he tells us at the end of chapter 1 is that John, after having been born and kind of growing up a bit, he spends his latter years prior to his ministry in the wilderness. Before the ministry begins, before the crowds come out to him, he was in the wilderness. John is shaped by the wilderness, Luke tells us. He was there until his ministry kind of went public, right? Then you go to chapter 3, and he'll tell us something different. He tells us that the word of God came to John while he was in the wilderness. So John was being formed in the wilderness, and where God first spoke to John and made clear to him what he was supposed to say as he proclaimed the kingdom and the coming of Jesus, right? That all happened while he was in the wilderness, right? But the thing I think that we all remember, obviously we all remember the wilderness for what? Jesus being in the wilderness. Jesus goes to John, who, remember, was out in the wilderness, all these people are going out to him. Jesus goes along where all these other people are being baptized. Jesus is baptized. Luke tells us that Jesus in that moment is filled with the Holy Spirit in this mysterious way. And then Luke tells us he goes to the wilderness. But he, he doesn't just go to the wilderness. 
He's led to the wilderness. Luke says the Spirit took him into the wilderness, almost involuntarily. We don't think Jesus goes involuntarily, but the sense is the Spirit is what drives him out into the wilderness. It's one of the most like, memorable and interesting components of that whole passage. It was the Spirit that took him to that place that we so often are avoiding, the wilderness, right? And he's tempted there. We know the story, how he overcomes the enemy. We know the story. It's exciting. It's beautiful and amazing. He is overcoming the enemy for the first time in the life of God's people. And it's this like precursor of what's going to happen in the cross, right? It's beautiful. And he comes out of the wilderness prepared for what God is calling him to do. So think about it. For Luke, the wilderness is that. It is this place in which God is forming his people, right? It's the place where God is, is shaping and, and molding his people, just like he, he molded John in the wilderness, just like he shaped and, and formed even Jesus in the wilderness. He shapes us in the wilderness, and just like he shaped Israel in the wilderness. Think of Exodus. Think of Numbers and Leviticus, the way God was forming, fashioning a people for himself out in the wilderness, some of the hardest moments of their history. Luke is sending us a message. Silence solitude, stillness, stopping ourselves from all the busyness and distraction, prayer, fasting, these, these kinds of things, these are the places in which God forms us as his people. If God is going to do something in our lives, these things are going to be connected to it. It's just the reality of it. We can't duck around it because even Jesus himself follows that pattern, right? Richard Foster says it really well. He says that, that silence and stillness is like an operation in which the anesthetic must take effect before the surgery can be performed. Silence, stillness, prayer, these patterns, solitude, they're like the anesthetic that needs to kind of take effect before anything can be done. The work can't actually start until we've kind of opened ourselves, prepared ourselves to receive the thing he's going to do. And silence, solitude, prayer, these are the places in which that's happening. Before Christ himself, even Jesus, has to do this. Before he can pursue this miraculous ministry, this incredible thing, the proclamation of the coming of the kingdom, he even needs to be formed in the wilderness. But here's the thing. Luke says Jesus is not done with the wilderness after that story. Like, think about it. We tend to stop thinking about the wilderness and Jesus after that. He defeated the enemy. He's done with the wilderness. He moves on from the wilderness. But if you read the end of chapter 4, you hear how, how Jesus' ministry is, is just continuing to, to gain momentum, right? He's healing people. He's just healed uh, a number of folks. The crowds are coming, and Luke says in verse 42, right there at the end of chapter 4, that Jesus chose to get away from all of this. He chose to get away and go out to a solitary place, Luke says. In Greek, he says Jesus chose to go out into the wilderness. Same word that's been used the whole time. For John being out in the wilderness, for Jesus being out in the wilderness, once again, Jesus chose to go out to a solitary place. Same exact word. He was in the wilderness. Jesus chooses solitude. It's not just a place that the Spirit led him once. He goes back there again. Not the literal wilderness. He's not out in the desert in the time that he was before. Wilderness, become, it, it takes on this whole new kind of meaning for him. 
Jesus embraces solitude. He stills himself before the Father. And that movement toward wilderness, as he says, it continues to become a pattern in Jesus' life. More and more, it's a rhythm he lives by. By chapter 5, where we are today, the crowds are getting bigger. He's just healed a leper, right? Amazing things are happening. And Jesus and his disciples, they've almost become like some kind of like traveling circus. And everybody's got to come to see, right? I don't know if you guys grew up in a small town. I grew up in a really small town. Um, and as a kid, even though you know what's happening at the fair, you know the Gravitron's going to be there. You know that, 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 that Pharaoh, what was that, that, that one, the, the, the ship, it would sit and, and rock back and forth. You know what's going to be there. You know the kind of food they're going to have. You know the whole routine, and yet you still have to go. There's something exciting about it, right? In the fall, everybody has to go to the fair, and Jesus has become like this circus. Everybody just keeps following him. They keep coming out to wherever he is to see what he's going to do. And in verse 16, Luke says it once again. Jesus withdrew to lonely places, and he prayed. He withdrew to the wilderness, Luke says in Greek, and he prayed. It's the same word he's been using the whole time. What's different this time is that Luke says that word wilderness in the plural. Now, consider that. He says it in, in the plural, right? Not only has Luke been telling us repetitively that Jesus has done this. He's gotten away from the crowd. He's gotten away from the busyness. He's gotten away from all of the movement of the thing to pray, to seek silence, solitude in the presence of the Father. Now he says it in the plural to let us know. Jesus does this in the plural more than once. Over and over again, Jesus is embracing this. It's a pattern in his life. If you didn't get that already, you have to see it now. Prayer is meant to be plural. Silence and solitude is meant to be plural in our lives. And it's not, is the reality of us, uh, for so many of us. We find ourselves in a different place very often. Our translation says, often he withdrew. Other translations say, frequently he got away. Because it's plural. He did it again and again. Jesus was being shaped by the wilderness day after day. And the implication is, just as Jesus needed to be formed in the wilderness, you need to be formed in the wilderness. We, as his people, need to be formed in the wilderness. You need to step away. You need to seek the Lord in the middle of the busyness and the distraction and everything else you think you'd rather be doing. You need this desperately. This is where you'll be formed. And what's interesting, like just notice what Jesus is stepping away from. He isn't leaving something inherently negative or wrong. Jesus is stepping away from something that is unquestionably good. This is what he's wanted. This is what we have wanted. The kingdom of God has come, and it is clearly being demonstrated in the life of Jesus, right? It's happening. It's amazing. He's experiencing success. He has curried the favor of the crowds. They're all in approval. People are being healed and, and saved. And I think it's easy for us to recognize how we need to step away from those things in our lives that kind of inevitably get toxic. There are certain things that we recognize that are normative in our culture or society that we recognize can become unhealthy. And yes, obviously we need to step away from those things. But what about these things? 
it's easy for me to make the point that you need to step away from the toxic things. But what about the good things? Jesus is experiencing the thing we want him to experience, that he has sought out. This is the work he was called to do. These are the people he was called to. The crowds that are coming to him are desperate. And Jesus says it outright. He says outright, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. And these are the sick. They're here. The sick, the desperate, needy crowds are here. This is exactly what he's supposed to be doing. There's nothing wrong with what he's doing. And yet, Jesus steps away from it. He doesn't go literally to the desert again. But he steps away from these things. He chooses to still himself before the presence of the Father, right? He chooses not to be defined by his successes, by the crowd. I love it when John says it. It's John chapter 2, verse 24. He says that that crowds were coming to, to Jesus. The people were coming to Jesus, and many of them were believing. But John says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. He would not entrust himself to the crowd, to the people who were coming, and even, even the believing ones. That doesn't mean Jesus is distrusting or he's skeptical about humans or something like that, like, like he knows humanity. J- John will say he knew what was in them, but he doesn't mean somehow that, that Jesus doesn't like people. He can't trust them. He means exactly what Luke is getting at. Jesus refuses to be defined by a crowd of people. He knows inevitably the crowd may turn. He knows the crowd may walk away from him. And that means the approval of the crowd, approval of of those around us, the expectations of those around us, they cannot be the defining factor in our lives. Jesus cannot be defined by his success and prominence in their eyes. He won't let it happen. He won't even let himself be defined by the miraculous healings, these signs and wonders that he's performing for them. It'd be easy to be defined by those things, right? Everybody's going to define you. When they say your name, they're going to say those things you did, right? You've heard of Jesus. He did this and this and this and this and this, and Jesus refuses to let it go on. He steps away from it. It makes me think of of what Jonathan was saying last week. We were talking about Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and the whole time he's talking, I just keep thinking about the amazing story we're being told about Elijah the whole time. The incredible things he saw. Like if, if we believe what we're being told about Elijah during his life, he was, he was miraculously fed out in the wilderness. He was by himself, and God sent food his way, just like he sent Israel food out in the wilderness, right? He had watched it happen. He had seen fire fall from heaven. He had seen the defeat of the prophets of Baal. His life had been saved. He'd seen his enemies defeated. He'd even seen this widow's son raised from the dead. Elijah's just seen amazing stuff. And yet, Elijah still found himself in that place. He still finds himself so discouraged, so weary. Like the things he's seeing, I think we have said over and over again in our lives, if I had seen that, I would never depart from this thing I believe. I would never walk away. I'd be so certain. Elijah has seen all of that, and yet he's still saying, I'm ready to walk away. Jonathan said it last week in Hebrew. That word is just enough. He's exasperated, exhausted. His heart is broken. He doesn't doesn't want to do this anymore. He doesn't want to live even. His heart is broken. 
all of the incredible things this man has seen, they cannot sustain him through what he's facing. Even the miraculous. Elijah had to learn that. Jesus already knows it. Jesus gets it. All of those things can't sustain him through what he's facing. What is inevitably coming down the tracks at Jesus, he knows he cannot face simply because of the success he's experiencing. Regardless of the goodwill of the crowd, regardless of what all these people think, regardless of success, he needs something more. He's defined by this relationship he has with the Father. And he refuses to entrust himself to the crowd. He only entrusts himself to his Father. Again and again, that doesn't mean he's distrusting. It doesn't mean he's cold and aloof. No. It means he recognizes this. That is how he's sustained. And Luke is saying by telling us over and over again, that is how you are sustained. You're going to fool yourself into thinking otherwise, but this is how you're sustained. And yet day after day, we tend, though knowing this, to fill our lives with all these other, and truthfully, very often, good things. That's what's so difficult. Not discerning all the terrible things we ought to let go of, but the good things that we need to step away from routinely to be in the presence of the Father. We tend to structure our lives around all this other stuff and ignore the need for the wilderness. We throw ourselves headlong into our careers, into our work, into trying to become something. We have all these ambitions, all these dreams, and truth be told, very often they're good things, right? Good ambitions. Sometimes they're not. We recognize that. But those ambitions, they drive us toward growth, toward success, toward something more. We're driven by these things. And it, it's only worsened by the fact that we live in a culture that just spurs us on more and more, that glorifies that. Drive, ambition, grind. We love it. We eat it up. And we try to project that image about ourselves. Yeah, that's me. Driven, ambitious, I'm grinding day after day, right? And the church is no different. I wish it could be said that we are, but pastors have certainly been guilty of it. Like creating whole structures, whole ways of doing ministry that are built on this grind, ambition, drive. And you just don't see it in Jesus. Even parents, right? They feel this kind of pressure. Like I, I have felt that pressure inevitably. You don't even have to have your own children. You can just kind of feel it for other people. Right? The pressure of parenting so often. We want for our children what we feel like we needed so bad when we were children. We want them to have what we feel like maybe we didn't have, right? Over and over again. And so we're trying to kind of like fill in the void maybe. Or all those things that were so precious to us, we want to give them more and more of, right? And then inevitably we fail, right? But we're trying to do a good thing. We want to be faithful fathers or mothers, and we're drawn to that. We're driven toward it. But inevitably, life presents us with sorrow. Inevitably, life presents us with our failure, with our brokenness, with our sin. Inevitably, life presents us with things we can't quite put our finger on. We don't know where they came from, things like depression. Inevitably, life presents us with, with struggle. And all of our wrestling with it is to no avail. That's the reality of the thing, right? 
And rather than confront these things, we would rather occupy our minds with something else. Busy our minds with some other distraction, right? And it's become inherent. We don't even recognize it all the time. It's easier, as we were saying earlier, it's easier sometimes just to lose yourself in whatever you're watching on TV lately. It's easier to lose yourself in the fantasy of social media, right? It's just easier to give yourself to these things, right? When you're tired, when you're exhausted, that's the thing you pick up. It's not silence and stillness, it's numbness. Get caught up in a story that's not your own. Anything but my own issue. Anything but my own circumstance, rather than confronting it. We get lost in this sort of infinite feed, right? One show after another. One post after another. And it never ends, right? And I think what we find eventually is that all of these things are forming us in ways we didn't realize. We know it. But we tend to kind of, again, once we realize it, occupy our mind with something else. We're being formed by these things. And I think the question that Luke kind of forces us to ask here is, what will be left of you? What will you be when all of that, entertainment and distraction and your career and whatever else, what will you be when it's done forming you? What will be left of you? Jesus gets it. He understands it. What will you be done? What will be done with you? And all of this is finished, forming you over and over again. Like Luke is saying, if even Elijah can't be sustained by his success, if Jesus himself cannot be sustained by the miraculous work of the kingdom he's been given to do, you're a fool to think that you can. He keeps bringing it before us again and again. The thing you're called to, all your dreams, all these good things you're supposed to be giving yourself to do. You can't do them well. You can't honor God. You can't honor those around you. You fall short again and again. You will find continually deflated. You will find yourself continually saying with Elijah, enough. I can't keep doing this. It will inevitably happen. And maybe when you feel that, you'll just distract yourself with something else. That tends to be our pattern, right? But you have to silence all these other things. Still yourself in the presence of the Father. This is the place where we're being formed. This is the place Jesus himself goes to. And Luke is inviting us. Go there with him. Into the wilderness. Let God carry you. Even as Jesus was carried by the Spirit into the wilderness. Give yourself to this thing. Maybe you find yourself there. I think the reality is so many of us do. We're exhausted, we're weary, we're exasperated by our circumstances. Hearts have been broken by one thing after another. All these ambitions, all these dreams didn't really come to fruition. Whatever it might be. And instead of distracting ourselves with something else, we're being invited into the presence of the Father. Learning to open our hands and receive. Learning to listen, as Elijah does, for the whisper of the Spirit. And the table offers us a unique opportunity. The band's going to come this morning and we're going to step back into to worship together. But the table invites us this incredible opportunity to stop the busyness and the distraction and to be sustained in the presence of the Father. 
Not to distract our minds with something else, but to give ourselves to the body and blood of Jesus to allow the bread of heaven to sustain us rather than all these other things we've been trying to fill a void with. Still everything else. Last week I kind of messed it up. Jonathan had said, let's sit in silence. And I kind of want to make that a pattern through all of this. Before we come to the table, I invite you to that. Before the band begins to play, we'll just sit. And it's not like the moments of silence you're used to seeing. I feel like we're used to that in public life. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about just sitting and opening our hands. Sitting and and listening. Training ourselves to hear the Spirit whispering among us. Inviting us into His presence. So we'll just sit quietly and, and allow God to prepare us as we come to the table. If you didn't get a chance, communion is, is over on this table. Obviously, we're trying to do COVID compliant stuff. Um, so feel free during this song if you want to head that way. You'll be welcome to, to do that. If you don't have that, um, feel free to. I'm going to let them play a song and then I'm going to come back up and I'll lead us to this.